Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all that his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with, with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for this morning. And Lord, we just, as we open up your word today and we read, Lord, may you stir in our heart fresh and anew. In Christ's name, amen. Well, listen, we've had a, a very crazy, busy, wonderful, hard, good week and everything intertwined with it. Uh, yesterday I had the opportunity to minister to Lee's family, is, is Lee's mother passed away 98 years old wow amazing and uh got to minister there and and rob doing some singing and it was really a, a blessing to be a part of that uh so and lee here's the other thing uh bob white and i so lee is one of our elders we had an elders meeting and and bob and i talked and in Lee, this idea about like you leaving and dying or this or that, you have to have written permission from all elders to do that. And you don't have permission, so you're just stuck. You got to be here for a while, right? So take care of yourself. We need you, buddy. But hey, listen, I know right now what's on everyone's mind. And what's on everyone's mind is in 194 days, it's going to be the Summer Olympics in Paris, France, right? You guys know that? I think we've got the little logo for the Paris Olympics. Yeah. How many people are counting down the days to the Summer Olympics? How many of you, now let's be honest, because I know people always say, oh, the Olympics are ridiculous. So that, how many of you get pulled into the Olympics and you end up watching things that you don't even really care about? Right. It, it, Brent, I appreciate your honesty. I'm the same way. Right? There's things that I don't even care about, but somehow or another, I get pulled into them. And the Winter Olympics are the worst. Because it'll be like, Pam and I will be like, it's late, we gotta go to bed, ooh, curling. And you, know, and you end up watching this, and it's like, shh, the Bulgarian team's going, I wanna see how they do. <laughs> cheering for this person, cheering for that. The Olympics are amazing, but uh, they can be staggering to pull off for any city. Paris, however, has some of the infrastructure, they have some of the venues, so they're just doing mild renovations at the cost of $8 billion. Um, that's a lot of dough. But you know, here's the interesting thing about the Olympics. After the Olympics is over, a lot of times the venues are used, sometimes they're not. Um, it can be heartbreaking to see what happens. In other words, I want to show you a couple pictures. This is from 2016, the Rio Olympics, the, Aqua the Aquatic Center. So let's go to that first picture, Eddie. It's beautiful. There's something about big pools that I just think look awesome. Like, doesn't it look fresh and cool? How many of you have, could barely swim a lap but would love to go in that pool and just kind of float around while Michael Phelps goes flying by, right? It's a beautiful arena, and they spent all this money. And, and the, the cool thing is, I remember actually watching a documentary where they show underneath the pool the filtration system and the engineering and how it's got to rotate X amount of thousands of gallons per second and all this stuff going through and these high-pressure things and all of this stuff goes into it. But here's the aquatic center today.
They spent all that money, but the end result is, is they didn't have the money to keep the upkeep, so it's been drained, and at some point they're trying to figure out, can they afford to tear it down? This next, and, and here's the thing, 2016 doesn't seem like that long ago. Yeah, I, 2016, I was 18 years old. <laughs> 1984, Sarajevo, Sarajevo Olympics. Look at this picture. The uh, East Germany bobsled team. Remember when Germany, is all these different things, East Germany. East Germany won the gold medal in the two-man bobsled team. You can see they're just coming through the finish line. The first guy who steers is waving. The back guy is smiling, but he's pulling the brakes on the bobsled. That is the bobsled trail in 1984. Here it is today. Same trail, falling apart. See, there's something, like when you look at these venues, they're beautiful, they're thoughtfully designed, and when you see all of these athletes and all of these people, it seems so vibrant and alive. But now they've become a distant memory, and it's almost kind of painful to look at these pictures. How many of you have ever seen a house that you remember when you were younger and it was beautiful and now it's overgrown and falling apart? It's hard to see that. Sometimes lives can fall into the same kind of disrepair. Relationships that were once vibrant and full of life can become shattered for a variety of reasons. Maybe you'll know, maybe you won't know. Sickness, old age can rob us of the vitality that was a trademark of our lives for decades. It's interesting how so many people I know who've gone on to be with the Lord, it was like they were doing really, really well and then all of a sudden they weren't doing well. I've got a tambourine under here. We're going to move that over here or else we're going to start having the beat in the middle of the message here. Sickness can rob us of our vitality and the trademarks of our lives for decades. Death can change the dynamic of families with the passing of loved ones who perhaps were the glue that held things together. Today we're going to start a study of the book of Nehemiah. If Nehemiah were here today, perhaps like these Olympic venues, he would put up pictures of what the glory days of Israel and Judah was, Judea was. And he would say, look at this, look at the roads, look at the infrastructure, look at the beautiful things, look at all of these things going on. But then he would also show these pictures and say, but it's not like that anymore. Everything had been completely destroyed. Israel, for all intents and purposes, it was like they had an atomic bomb dropped on them. See, let me give you a little bit of backdrop of what Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, is all about. You can make a strong case that despite all their flaws, and they had flaws, there were no two greater kings in Israel than King David and his son, King Solomon. David was the warrior. David was the one who expanded the kingdom. He fought back the enemies of Israel. He did all of these things. Solomon was the wisest king ever. And Solomon took what his father had and he reinforced it. And he grew it. And he grew its majesty. He grew its artwork. He grew its poetry. He grew its culture. He grew the temple. But after Solomon's death... Israel started having problems. 
Now, I know that this is going to be radical for you guys to think about, and I know that all of you aren't as good looking or as smart as I am, and it's okay. So I'm going to tell you some things that will be startling to you, but believe it or not, after King Solomon's death, some of his sons took over and there began to be political dissension within Israel. Can you imagine a country having political dissension? And then on top of that, people got really upset about taxation. Now I know that that's really strange and you're probably thinking, how could anyone ever get divided over politics and money? But it can happen. So, what did Solomon write in Ecclesiastes 1.9? That which has been is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. The problems that Israel was having thousands of years ago are the problems that are still going on in the world today. So I want to show you this map of Israel back in the day. So we have here in the blue, and you see Israel, because of political problems, because of disagreements and taxation, they divided in two. Israel became the north, known as the northern kingdom, and Judea became the southern kingdom. What does Jesus say about a house that's divided? It'll what? It'll crumble. It'll fall. It'll fall. Well, sure enough, not long after this happened, the Babylonian Empire rose. And the Babylonian Empire went, you know what? We see an opportunity. And they invaded Israel. And the kingdom fell. And the people in the northern kingdom fled to the southern kingdom. And they said, we got to reinforce it. And if anything, we got to circle the wagons around Jerusalem. The temple is there. And the Babylonians surrounded the southern kingdom and they kept creeping in tighter and tighter. They poisoned the water. They cut off food supply. They, they burned and destroyed everything and eventually broke down the walls, broke down everything, destroyed the temple and carried off two to three million Jewish slaves back to Babylon, which is current day Iraq. Well, the temple had been destroyed. Now, to just give you an idea, you know, you think of temples and you think or think of things in the United States. Like everyone can remember 9-11 when the Twin Towers went down. It was horrible. It was awful. To this generation of Jews, that would be their 9-11. To give you an idea of how grand the temple was, you can read about its construction in 1 Kings 5 through 7, chapter 5 through 7. The temple took seven years to build. It utilized 30,000 workers on shifts of 10,000 apiece. Now, I want you, can you imagine a project where you had 10,000 workers at a time working and supervising it? And it took 30,000 men seven years to complete this temple. And yet it was destroyed in about 60 days of an invasion. The Babylonians killed many. They led many into captivity. Slaves and servants were very valuable. So here we are at the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the last book, chronologically, is the last book in the Old Testament. It happens about 15 years after the writing of the book of Ezra. Nehemiah sits in a strategic moment of time. It's been a thousand years since Moses. 
It's been maybe about 400 years since a young shepherd ran down in the valley of Eli and fought a large Philistine. The Jewish people have been taken into captivity. They've been slaves to the Babylonians for 70 years. But God's not done. He's, not, he's far from done. 400 years after Nehemiah, very quietly in a stable, a young child would be born to a virgin. Israel belongs to God. It's always belonged to God. It needs a major renovation. And if you look at every book in the Bible, God, when he wants to do a fixer-upper, he pulls us in. He pulls his people in. It's not the first time that he's done some work there. During the Babylonian Empire, there were some prominent Jews that rose up. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, along with Esther during the Persian Empire. But in Ezra 4, we read that the enemies of Israel overwhelmed them and destroyed what little progress had been made. But now God has turned his eyes on a cupbearer in the Persian Empire. A guy who's done well for himself, but how could Nehemiah do anything? Nehemiah begins 15 years after the book of Ezra, and I invite you to open up your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1, and we're going to start at verse 1. Our three for the road, number one, is this. Ask the Lord what is on his mind. Ask the Lord what is on his mind. In Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakali, it came to pass in the month of uh, Shizlov, the twelfth year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel. Now all that means, and here's one of the things about the Bible that I love, the Bible does not fade away from giving you details. These are real places, these are real people. Many of them can be, you can, trans, you can cross-reference it through historical documents. Now a lot of you go, no wait a minute, he's in a fortified castle, fortified palace, but that's under Persian control. Well, We're going to talk about that in a minute. That Hanani, one of the brethren, came with the men from Judea. Now Hanani is a brethren, he's not a brother, he's a brethren. Both Nehemiah and Hanani are from the tribe of Judah part of that southern kingdom. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and who had survived the captivity concerning Jerusalem. And he said to me, the survivors who left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down. The gates are burned with fire. Now I want you guys to understand some things that are going on. About 60, 70 years after the Babylonians had conquered the northern and the southern kingdom, taken two plus million Jews as slaves, well guess what? There's always a bigger bully on the block. And a bigger bully was growing in modern day Iran. And it was the Persians. And the Persians came and they went, you know what Babylonians? We're going to take you over. And they destroyed the Babylonians and then basically transferred the slaves from Babylonian slaves to, guess what? Persian slaves. Now, you could think that perhaps the Jews might have actually been a little encouraged at the Babylonians, right? 
because the Babylonians had done some pretty awful things to the Jewish people. So I think maybe the Jewish people were like, hey, listen, I'm not thrilled to be slaves, but I'm glad you guys got it. But they're still slaves. And while this invasion was happening, some Jews escaped. And once they escaped, where are you going to go? I guess go back to the northern and southern kingdom. But what's the problem? What are they going back to? Nothing. And so Hanani comes to Nehemiah and says, hey, uh, some of the people who escaped during all of this war stuff, they're back there. And Nehemiah goes, good, good. How are things going? Well, Nehemiah, to be totally honest, not good. They are living in constant hostility situations. They have no protection. They are vulnerable. There's no infrastructure. There's no building. Well, haven't they been able to? No, they haven't built anything. Let's make this hit home. Ask the Lord what is on his mind. Nehemiah's heart is going to be broken for a city that he's never been to. That's 800 miles away. It says in Psalm 137, verses 5 through 6, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. Yay. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy, take Jerusalem out of that and put the Lord. If I forget you, O Lord, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, O Lord, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt you, O Lord, above all my chief joy. Last week we watched a movie called The War Room. If you missed it, I encourage you to check it out. It's pretty easy to find online. I love the line where this woman talks about her prayer. She says, I have a prayer strategy. In my prayer life, I'm trying to do more listening, less talking. See, how many of you can identify this? Are there things in your life that you desperately want God to heavily get involved in? How many of you have things in your life? How many of you, at the drop of a hat, could stand up and say, I would love the Lord to get heavily involved with fill in the blank. I would love the Lord to get heavily involved in I have a prodigal son or daughter. I would love the Lord to get heavily involved in a loved one has cancer. I would love the Lord God to get heavily involved in my situation at work is becoming extremely tense. I would love the Lord my God to get involved at this. But I want to ask you a question. The other day when I was trying to listen, I felt like the Lord said, Eric, has it ever occurred to you that there's some things I would like you to get heavily involved in? See, all the time when I'm going, but God, oh, Lord, pray for this. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, oh, Lord. And I feel like God's going, can I, can I? Eric, do you ever shut up? Do you ever listen? Eric, do you know what's on my heart? Do you know what, Eric, I would like to see you get in heavenly involvement? Eric, this isn't a one-way trip. This isn't God do this, God do that, rub the lamp, come out and do something. Eric, what do I want you to get heavily involved in? If I had to guess, why did Hannah and I even go to Judea in the first place? 
because God was moving. Why does Nehemiah care about a place that's 800 miles away that he's never been to? Because God's moving. What's on God's mind? And is what's on God's mind on your mind? Do you have a prayer strategy? Do you have a listening reflex? Let's keep going. Three for the road, number two. What has God done? What is he doing? What has God done and what is he doing? Because look at how Nehemiah reacts here. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. Nehemiah's reaction, how many of you have heard things or learned news and all you can do is cry? If you haven't, you will. Life. Listen, I remember visiting a friend one time at a hospital. And I was talking with the, the person, the patient, you know, they were in serious condition. I went out and I said to a relative of his, I said, what do we think? And he goes, you want to know what I think, Eric? No one gets out alive. He goes, maybe you escape death today, tomorrow, whatever. But he goes, no one gets out alive. And there is a time for tears. There is a time to mourn. There absolutely is. But I'm going to tell you that one of the things about Nehemiah is while he is brokenhearted and while he is weeping and while he is probably going, why God, why God, why God, he transitions here. Because look at the second part of this verse. It says, um, so when he heard these words, he sat down, he wept, and he mourned for many days, comma, I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I want to ask you something. When life really turns up the heat, when the hard times come, we're really good at weeping and mourning. How many of us are really good at fasting and praying? Really fasting and praying and coming before the Lord. I would say I'm better at the weep and mourn than fast and pray. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O oh, great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those, you with those who love you and observe your commandments. Now, I'm going to tell you something. There's some interesting things going on in this. You know, in John 16, it says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribula tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Two things to remember. One, he's overcome the world. Number two, he will give you peace in the midst of tribulation. You know one of the keys in life, I really believe, is the ability to stay calm when everything's going chaotic. One of my best youth leaders I ever had was this woman, Rona. And the only reason why she was one of the best youth leaders I ever had is Rona had served for a long time in the United States Navy. And let me tell you something, nothing rattled that woman no matter what was going on. And so she could come to me and say some of the most like, hey, Eric, I need to tell you what's going on here with some of these kids or what's going on with this or this. And she would say things like, oh, my gosh. And she'd go, easy, easy. <laughs> One time I was talking to her, I said, Rona, 
Uh, you ever, like I said to her one time, I said, hey, if you're on a battleship and it starts on fire, like, do you think you could survive the jump off the side of a ship, just joking around? She looked at me and she goes, we don't jump off the ship, Eric. She goes, you put the fire out. She said, if there's bombs underneath the deck and there's a fire in the bomb room, she goes, you go down and put the fire out. And I said, what if the bombs go out? She goes, then you meet God on the fly. Wow. Well, here's the thing. Nehemiah says to God, hey, you know what, God? I pray the Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Now there's some things going on here. In 2 Samuel 7, it says, when your days are fulfilled, he's speaking of David, and you rest with your fathers. Listen to what the, God says to him. I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and will establish his kingdom. And he, and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now I'm going to tell you something. We have hindsight vision. We know they're talking about Jesus here. Did Nehemiah? Could Nehemiah really be a little bit angry with God? Could Nehemiah say, hey, God, i got to be honest with you, you let us down. You didn't keep your covenant. There's no king on the throne. A matter of fact, the throne's been burned down and destroyed. So I'm crying out to you, and to be honest with you, God, you owe me an explanation. But no, he never says that. He says, you will keep your covenant. Even if I don't understand what you're doing, it doesn't mean you're not on the throne. How many people have a faith and obedience and a love for God that you can say, God, I don't know what you're doing, but you're on the throne. And those are the moments in life that those are the gut check moments. Those are the moments in life where you're going below deck into the fire with the bombs and you're going, God, I may not survive this, but I'm going to trust that you're sitting on the throne. So listen to what he says here. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, and you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, night, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. Guys, let me tell you something. When you draw near to him, you will see him clear, and you will also see yourself clear. And Nehemiah says, hey, Lord, you know what? We're in this mess. You want to know why? Because our forefathers sinned. Father, we are in this mess because everyone has sinned. And Father, we are in this mess because, well, quite frankly, I have sinned. I have sinned. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, and have not kept your commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you have commanded your servant Moses. What's your level of love and obedience? What is your level of love and obedience? Do you remember in 1 Samuel 25, it's when David was on the run, and he's in the hillsides, and he's protecting Nabal's livestock from raiders and all this stuff. And he goes to Nabal and he asks for Nabal. He says, basically, we're starving up in the mountains. Could we have some food? 
And Nabal insults David's servants and all these things. And David goes ballistic. And he goes, hey, listen, we're going down there. We're going to take everything and we're going to kill them all. Right? It, it, it's almost like, you know, hey, we found a mouse in the side room, burn the place down. That's David's response. And he goes storming down the hill. They're all dressed up. I think it's a scene from like Braveheart. They're all ready to go, battle war, paint on everything. And they're going down there. And who does he encounter? Abigail. And what does Abigail say? Hey, David, two things. Number one, my husband's a fool. Ladies, don't marry a fool. Step number two, David, you have been treated wrong, you've been done wrong, and you want revenge. So David, it's my fault. Kill me. And guys, I'm going to tell you something. Pam could do something to make me extremely irritated, but when she looks at me and she goes, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Yeah, why don't I take you out to dinner? <laughs> why? And David just melts, and he's just like, well, I can't. And guys are going, well, are you going to kill her? Well, I'm going to kill her. No, I'm not going to kill her. We'll give her a sword, and then it'll feel even. I'm not killing Abigail. Guys, take the food she brought, go back up, we'll have a potluck. What is your level of love and obedience? Let's make this hit home. What has God done and what is he doing? It's a never-ending debate about a loving God and yet a broken, evil, and heartbreaking world that we live in. But it is undeniable that God is good. And Nehemiah clings to that. Even though he sees desolation and destruction and despair, God is good. When the heat of life gets turned up, I'm convinced that, am I trying to run to the Lord? But also, am I asking the Father, what are you teaching me? And Lord, what are you trying to do at large? The heartbreak that Nehemiah felt for the Jewish nation, ironically, was the same heartbreak that God felt. And God looked at Nehemiah and said, Nehemiah, I can't use you until you see, feel, and think the things I do. So I want you to see what I see. I want you to feel what I feel. I want you to think what I think. And Nehemiah doesn't complain or point blame. Instead, he fasts and he prays. Guys, I want you to know that in John eleven thirty five, 35, it's the shortest verse in the Bible. Everyone should have it memorized. What is it? Jesus wept. Where, what is the context? Death of Lazarus. Right? But ironically, Jesus is weeping, but he has complete dominion and power over the whole situation. Why did he weep? Because it broke his heart because he never intended death. Why do we weep? Because we weren't designed to handle these things, and it breaks his heart. We both have broken hearts. If we're going to call out to the Lord in the valleys, we also need to call out him in the mountaintops. Remember what he has done, fall before him and pray and fast and ask, Lord, what are you doing and what's my role in it? What do you want? What has God done and what is he doing? Look for his purpose in your life. When things get tough, 
Don't ask God to calm the storm. Instead, go, Lord, what's going on in the storm that I need to know? What's happening? So many Christians, including myself, spend time praying to ask God, make my life easy. And God goes, Eric, you can't pray, make my life easy, and then say, Lord, develop me and use me. It doesn't work that way. If I'm going to develop you and use you, it's not always going to be easy. But let's finish this up. Three for the road, number three. Make sure you got skin in the game with your prayer life. Make sure you got skin in the game with your prayer life. So look at verse eight. Remember, I pray, the word, remember, I pray that the word, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations, which is exactly what has happened. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though some of you were cast out to the farthest parts of the heaven, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. See, Nehemiah goes back to the scriptures and he says, Lord, now wait a minute. It's starting to make sense. And the problem is us. And Father, your promise to us is that if we turn to you, You'll draw us in. There'll be healing. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day, I pray. See, here's the interesting thing. Nehemiah says, listen, Lord, I can't solve the problem of other people who aren't obedient. I can't solve the people who don't love you. But what can I do? I can be obedient and I can love you. And Lord, there's more of us. There's more of us who are obedient and love you. And then look how this comes together here. He says, I pray that you grant me mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. See, this is the interesting thing. Notice that all through this whole chapter, Nehemiah is talking to God. God is breaking Nehemiah's heart. God's heart is broken. God's just sharing his broken heart with Nehemiah. And all through this, and then Nehemiah goes, okay, Lord, I'm kind of thinking of a plan here. But one of two things need to happen. Lord, you can come and establish this yourself. We all know that's in your realm of possibility. But if you want to do this at the worldly level, my boss has got to have, he's got to help me. Now I'm going to tell you something. You don't need worldly people to do God's business. But God will use worldly people. And he'll do his things the way he wants to do it. And so Nehemiah basically says, Lord, I know that you can just do this a snap of your finger. You can make it happen. Right? Remember when the demon came running down to Jesus when he got out of the boat? Do you remember what he called out? Son of God, what do you have with me? 
and it says the demon bowed down and worshipped him. Do you think that God's going, oh, I don't know if we can pull together. I mean, Solomon had 30,000 people. I don't even know if there's that many people around. We don't have skilled labor. We don't, no, God doesn't need any of that. But Nehemiah says, God, you don't need that. But if you're going to do it in this system, I need you to move in some of these people. In my years of being in ministry, I'm going to tell you something. We've prayed for township administration. We've prayed for favor in meetings over zoning laws, all sorts of things as we were trying to build our church and do different things. Because I'll tell you what, between neighbors, zoning laws, noise things, drainage, sewage stuff, boy, there's a lot of people in the world who can slow up a lot of things. And if you've ever built anything, you know it. But he says, listen, I, I may need this king. And God, I'm willing to use my influence that I have with him. But I'm going to need you in that too. Because the king likes me. He may even listen to me. He may even have compassion on me. But Lord, this is going to be a big request. I'm going to need you to kind of get involved. Let's make this hit home. Make sure you have skin in the game in your prayer life. Going back to the idea that God wants to use us, I think we need to check our heart to determine if we want to be used. Nothing great ever happens without skin in the game. In the movie The War Room, Miss Claire pours into a young mother and wife named Elizabeth Jordan, praying for her and mentoring her and challenging her. And at the end of the movie, does anyone remember what Miss Claire challenges Elizabeth to do? Find someone else. Find someone else. And pour it into her. Because Miss Claire realizes I'm getting old. I gotta, I gotta give what I have to someone else, and they gotta give what they have to someone else. In other words, have skin in the game. Breaking ground is messy. Breaking ground at first in a construction project is kind of fun. I remember at my old church when we broke ground, we had all these silver. S shovels, you know, stick them in the ground. Everyone had these cool hat, hard hats. I don't know why we're wearing hard hats. We're in the middle of a field. <laughs> the only thing that would fall on us is a meteor. <laughs> Great. And that was kind of fun, and that's kind of cool. But once you really start breaking ground on things, do they look better or worse? I remember Joanne telling me that years ago when this church, when they broke ground here, she goes, I remember when they broke ground at Hope Church. She goes, it was, it was kind of fun, exciting, a church was coming. She goes, I drove by like a month later. It just looked like a giant pile of mud. It's true. The word break is an interesting word to me. Breaking ground is an exciting time in construction, but there's awful hard phases to it. There's discouraging times to it. Ed, you've been involved with real estate for a long, long time in your life. There's probably times that something's getting built, you get kind of excited. Then there's other times you go, Man, I don't know what's going on here. Things don't look good. Is this ever going to be done? How many people have ever had a renovation done in their house? One small bathroom renovation can turn the entire country upside down. Break. Breaking, a lot, a lot of times, break, the word break is associated with bad things. Breaking ground can be exciting. Breaking up isn't exciting. Something breaking down. I pull out of church and I see Rob stalled out on the side of the road. I go, Rob, what's going on? My truck broke down. Praise the Lord. No. 
When you're a teenager, you can have a breakout, acne. When you fall, you break a bone. When something's not holding together, it breaks apart. In the 1980s, we came up with break dancing. It's a dark moment. <laughs> but the point of it is, is that God can't do things unless we're willing to break ground in our lives, in our friendships, in our church. It can be tough. It can be hard. This school that's here during the week, sometimes I'm here and it's like it's going really, really well. Other days, I'll walk out and I'll see some of the teachers and I go, how's it going? Oh, pastor. Breaking ground. It's hard. It's tough. But God wants to do it. And one of the things I'm convinced about is I think, you know what, Lord? Put the things that are on your mind, put them on my mind. Lord, the things that you think, the things that you see, the things that you feel, Lord, I pray that I would see, think, and feel those things. Lord, when I'm hurt by what's happened or been done, Lord, let me look for what you're doing. Lord, don't let me pray to make things easier. Lord, let me pray to say, all right, what's going on here, Lord? Because it's not like something's going to happen in your life that God's going, boy, I did not see that coming. No, we say that. He never says that. But you got to have skin in the game. You got to be in it. You got to be willing to say, all right, Lord. And Nehemiah goes, Lord, listen, I got a plan. I got an idea. I'm going to go to the king and ask for outrageous amounts of wood and labor force and all this stuff. And then I'm going to venture to this desolate place. Might be a tough sell, but Lord, unless you got a better plan, you can send it to me, Nehemiah.com, or you can just do it. But knowing the Lord, he's always going to say, no, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. Remember what Jesus said to the disciples? Come follow me and what? I'll make you fishers of men. He didn't say, come follow me because you bring a lot to the table, Sagul. No, he said, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. He made you. He made the fish. Come follow him. I asked the worship team to come up. Nehemiah is chock full of lessons, man. He's breaking ground. And like right now, he's probably getting ready to go before the king. And he's probably nervous, shaking in his boots. What could happen? But remember what Paul says? To live is Christ, to what? To die is gain. We love quoting that. How many of you are a little bit like, yeah, but the die part, I don't know anything about that. Yeah. I love the people who say, well, I could do this. I live is Christ, to die is gain. That's great. These are the same people who are crying like a baby when they got the flu. Come on. Let's stand up. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. God, just like you wanted to break ground and you made Nehemiah the supervisor of a project that you wanted to do, Lord, I pray that you would put the things on our heart that are on your heart. Lord, I pray that we would be quiet enough and listen enough and attentive enough to know what's on your heart. Lord, I pray 
that when the storms arise and when things happen, or maybe we're not pleased with what's happening, or maybe we're weeping and mourning, that our weeping and mourning would turn to prayer and fasting. And in finally, Lord, as you lay things in our hearts, as you develop us through the hardships that we will endure, that, Lord, we would have skin in the game, and like in the movie, we would pour into someone else as we have been poured into. Lord, that we would venture into this dark world and realize that we are not venturing into darkness alone. You are already in it. Lord, you're not just saying, hey, go out there and make it happen. You're saying, come with me. I'm already here. So God, we thank you for this time. Lord, we rejoice with those who are rejoicing. We mourn with those who are mourning. Lord, I'm thankful that Lee and Sherry are here today, and they've been through a lot. And in the midst of health concerns, they're mourning the loss, Lord, of his mother. And thank you that they could be here. We pray for those who are battling sicknesses. We pray for those who are battling things that maybe we know, maybe we don't know, Lord. But God, the beautiful thing is whatever they're battling, they don't battle it alone. You are there. So we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.